I want to begin with the first temptation that Satan gave to Jesus in the wilderness after the 40 days of temptation were over. <clears throat> and the reply that Jesus gave, that's what I want you to think about for a moment. Those are the first spoken words of Jesus' ministry. Remember it like that. What are the first words that Jesus spoke once he began his ministry recorded in the scriptures after his baptism? Matthew 4, verse 4. <clears throat> Never forget this. Man shall not live by bread or food alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. <clears throat> when we live close to God, we can hear him speak to us. That becomes clearer as we walk more and more with him. But right from the beginning of our Christian life, we have the Bible, which is God's word. <clears throat> and when it says here that we are to live by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. That means we cannot really experience a fullness of life. If we don't receive every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And you can be pretty sure that the devil knows that. And so one of the things the devil's going to do. Is to try his best. To make sure that Christians do not study the Bible. Or they read it casually. They're more interested in the news on the internet. Or <clears throat> in some cases video games or <clears throat> other things. So long as the devil can keep people away from the Bible. He knows that they will not come to spirit, full spiritual life. Man shall not live on bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So when we think of discerning Satan's tactics, here is the number one. He's going to try and prevent you from knowing the words that have proceeded out of God's mouth. Many people say, I can't hear God. Well, I'd say, brother, sister, have you read the Bible first of all? If you haven't read the Bible from cover to cover, don't say, I can't hear God speaking to my heart. It's one of the first things that I began to do when I was converted 62 years ago. I said, I want to read the Bible. Even if I don't understand it, <clears throat> as more and more as I read it, I'll understand it. <clears throat> the next thing that I want to say, which is from God's word, <clears throat> is that many Christians know only about the death of Christ that he died for our sins. I think all Christians know that. Christ died on the cross for our sins. But there are other things accomplished on the cross as well. In fact, in Romans 6, it says, Our old man, <clears throat> the mind that wants to sin, that's the old man, the mind that wants to sin, was crucified with Christ on the cross. Well, you say, I wasn't even alive then. Yes, but God knew you 
before the worlds were created and therefore he put you in Christ on the cross. Your mind to sin was crucified. That is how we come to victory over sin. Knowing that Christ died for our sins brings only forgiveness. But knowing that our mind to sin was crucified with Christ on the cross brings victory. As you read in Romans 6, sin shall not have dominion over you. How, do you, how would you get forgiveness if you do not believe that Christ died on the cross? You wouldn't be even forgiven today. Well, how can you get victory? If you don't believe what it says in Romans 6, that our old man was crucified with him. You say, well, it's difficult to believe that. <clears throat> well, millions of people in the world say it's difficult to believe that Christ died for our sins. But you believe it. And that changed your life. And the same thing with knowing that our old man was crucified with him. It changed your life. And here's another thing <clears throat> that happened on the cross. It says in Hebrews chapter 2 that one of the reasons why Christ took flesh and blood and came like us have you seen this? Hebrews chapter 2. Since we, the children, share in flesh and blood, he, that is Jesus, also took part in the same flesh and blood. Why? We would say to die for our sins. Yes. That our old man may be crucified with him. Yes. But here it says, so that through his death, he might render Satan powerless. That is the one where the power of death, that is the devil. Isn't it interesting that up until the time Jesus died, Satan had the power of death. He could kill Job's children. And he couldn't kill Job because God restrained him. But that power is taken away from him. When Jesus died on the cross. As far as God's children are concerned. Satan still has a whole lot of power over people who have not surrendered their life to Christ. But he has zero power over someone who has made Jesus Christ Lord of his life. But he can scare you if you don't know every word that has proceeded from the mouth of God. For example, some of the things I just showed you now. Well, Satan would scare you to make you imagine that he has power over you, even though he doesn't. To keep man ignorant of the word of God is his aim. <clears throat> Do you think a defeated enemy in a war would want all the newspapers in this country to proclaim that we have been defeated? <clears throat> Supposing a country A is fighting with a country B and B has been defeated thoroughly. <clears throat> the newspapers in A will publish it. B has been defeated. What about the newspapers in country B? <clears throat> they will try and conceal it. They'll probably publish a lie that we have won the victory. So in this battle between <clears throat> Christ and Satan, Christ, was, Christ defeated Satan 2,000 years ago. It's written in God's word. And those who live by every word that proceeds from God's mouth know it. <clears throat> but do you think Satan wants people to know it? No. He doesn't want any of you to know. Listen to me, my dear brothers and sisters. This will liberate you. He does not want you to know that he was thoroughly defeated on the cross. 
that he has zero power over you except what you give him. Yeah, it's possible for a believer to give Satan power, though he doesn't have to, because God has given us a free will. When Adam and Eve went into the Garden of Eden, they didn't have to go and eat of the forbidden tree. No. But they had a free will. We can say, why didn't God prevent them from going to the tree of knowledge of good and evil? God could have easily done that if he had made Adam like a robot. You know what a robot is programmed with a computer to do exactly what you tell it to do. And if God had made Adam like a robot, Adam would have walked up to the tree of knowledge of good and evil and the program would have said, turn away. And he would have turned away like a robot and gone to the tree of life. He wouldn't have been a son. Do you prefer to have a robot as a child in your home or a real child? God is like that too. He doesn't want robots. Look at the planets that have obeyed God for millions of years. But none of them can become children of God. No planet can sin because they don't have a free will. The trees and the plants, they obey God completely according to the laws of nature. They cannot sin. A tree cannot sin. But a tree cannot be a child of God either. Same thing with dogs and cats and all that. But we, we have a free will and a conscience. Only angels and human beings have that. And because of that, we can be children of God. And so it's very important for us to know what Christ did on the cross. He took away the power. It says here in Hebrews 2.14. It doesn't say he destroyed the devil. Satan has not been destroyed. He's not been killed. His power has been taken away. Why has Satan not been killed? God could have destroyed Satan. Why did God allow Satan to come into the Garden of Eden? Well, let me use an illustration from physical exercise. The only way we can develop the muscles in our body, whether it's in our legs or in our hands, is by subjecting those muscles to resistance. People pull springs and do exercise on machines with their legs, and they are subjecting the muscles in our body to some resistance. And when we subject the muscles in our body to resistance, the muscles become strong. Those who never do exercise, they become fat, not strong. So God has allowed Satan to exist to resist us. So that we can resist him and become spiritually strong. That's God's way. It's it's the way in our physical body. It's the way in our spirit too. But... We must recognize in our battle with Satan that we are battling a defeated enemy. He may be alive, but he's already been defeated and he has zero power over us. So it says here that he he was rendered powerless. And the purpose was, Hebrews 2.15, that he might free us, we who through fear of death, was subject to slavery all our lives. Every person born into the world is a slave of Satan. 
until he surrenders his life to the Lordship of Christ and believes that Satan was defeated on the cross, he's freed from that slavery. You know, this was not possible in the Old Testament. If you read right from Genesis to Malachi, you never read of any person fighting with Satan or overcoming Satan. You read of Satan right from Genesis chapter 3. And you read of Satan even in the book of Zechariah, accusing Joshua the high priest. But you, you read in Chronicles about Satan tempting David, but you never read of anyone overcoming Satan. You read of Satan in the book of Job, but you don't read of Job overcoming Satan. <clears throat> and so in the Old Testament, God never permitted Satan to come into contact or conflict with anybody. No Jewish person, nobody in Israel came into, into con conflict with Satan. Because they'd have all been crushed. The first person you read in the Bible who encounters Satan and overcomes him is Jesus Christ. So as soon as you read, open the pages of the New Testament, the first thing you read in the ministry of Jesus is his encounter with Satan. That's the first time in the Bible that you read of anyone encountering Satan and overcoming him. That's a pattern for us. We're not under the old covenant. The old covenant was abolished on the day of Pentecost. We need to understand that. The law of commandments, external commandments, was abolished on the day of Pentecost. And now, in the, from the day of Pentecost onwards, the Holy Spirit writes a far higher law in our hearts. Not just don't murder, but don't get angry. Not just don't commit adultery, but don't lust after women. That's a law written in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. We're not under the old covenant. We are under a higher law. As much higher as Jesus is above Moses. If you want to know how much higher the new covenant is above the old covenant, see how much higher Jesus is above Moses. They followed Moses. We follow Jesus. Satan could overcome people in the old covenant. God may have restrained him, but he could never overcome Christ. Look at these wonderful words that Jesus spoke at the end of his life. In John 14, verse 30. John 14, verse 30, the last part. The ruler of the world is coming, and he has nothing in me. See, Jesus acknowledged that Satan is the ruler of the world. Not this physical world of people, but this world system. The world system that controls movies, that controls television, that controls politics, that controls finances and so many things in this world. The ruler of this world system is Satan. It was the He was the ruler of the world when Jesus was on earth and he is the ruler of the world today. And that's why you see how pornography has flooded the internet. Who runs that system? Satan. And what shall we say of a believer who turns on his computer or his phone to watch this pornography which Satan is running? Do you think such a believer is in fellowship with Jesus? Do you think such a believer will ever overcome Satan? Not as long as he's doing that. 
He's cooperating with Satan. Financing it sometimes. Paying money. Just like a person pays money to go to a prostitute. These are the ways in which the devil gets advantage of God's people. But there are more ways. I'll come to that in a moment. But remember, Jesus said, the ruler of the world is coming, but he has nothing in me. Oh, what a testimony. For 33 and a half years, he lived on this earth, tempted exactly like we are. The devil tried to get into him, get into him, get into him. But he never could find a foothold in Jesus. What does it mean to follow Jesus? Jesus always said, follow me, follow me, follow me. Here is where we are to follow him. We are to follow him in the way he resisted Satan and resisted sin through the power of the Holy Spirit. That's why we need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. You cannot overcome Satan if you're not filled with the Holy Spirit. Don't treat that as something unimportant. We need to be filled with the Holy Spirit every day. Not a once-for-all experience. Every day. Because that's the only way we can overcome. And we must believe the word of God that he was defeated on the cross. I want to show you an amazing verse verse in scripture that's helped me tremendously. You know, God's word becomes true in your life only when you believe it. Otherwise, it's there, written in the pages of scripture. But it never becomes real in your life until you believe it. It's like food is in in the plate there. Excellent food that can make you strong. But if you just look at it, admire it, that food will not make you strong. Even if you eat it, it does not make you strong until it is digested. Food must not be admired, not just eaten, but digested. In the same way, the Bible and God's word is not given to you to be admired and to say, I believe the Bible is God's word. So what? Even the devil believes that. It's not enough to read it. If you read it and you don't meditate on it and you don't let it sink into your heart, it's like eating food which is not digested. Your digestive system is not working. And what is the result? You'll throw it out. You'll vomit and throw up. And it's gone. You can eat every day. And if you're going to throw it all up, you're not going to be strong. It has to be digested. The Bible says, blessed is the man who meditates on the word of God day and night. He'll be like a tree planted by the rivers, always bringing forth fruit. And whatever he does will prosper. I have lived by that word for many years. Psalm 1, verse 1 to 3. Don't walk in the way of ungodly people, but meditate on God's word day and night. Not read God's word day and night. Read it when you get opportunity, but meditate on it as and when you get an opportunity throughout the day. And whatever you do will prosper. That is how man shall live. Man is meant to live. And that's the first thing that that Jesus said in response to the devil. So let's look a little bit about 
how the devil comes. The first mention of the devil historically in the Bible is in the book of Job. And so let's just turn there for a moment. Actually, Job lived about hundreds of years before Moses who wrote Genesis. Moses wrote Genesis and Job lived maybe 500 years before Moses. And so the book of Job is actually the first book in the Bible. And the first book in the Bible where God wrote tells us about Satan wanting to attack a godly man. Isn't that interesting? And how God boasted about this man Job who had such a wonderful testimony that he feared God and turned away from evil. Let me show you, tell you something about this man Job. Just one thing among others. In Job and chapter 31, Job chapter 31, we read something about that whole chapter. We read something about his testimony as a a godly man. And you can see why Satan wanted to attack this man. Look at this. This is a man who lived before the Ten Commandments were written, before Moses. Job 31, verse 1. I made a covenant or an agreement with my eyes. How can, then I, how can I then look with lust at a woman? You say, hey, when did Job live? Did he live after Jesus spoke about these things in Matthew chapter 5? No, he lived even before the Ten Commandments were given. Then where did he get this idea that I should not lust after a woman? I'll tell you. When you develop the habit of fearing God, like Job did, God himself will tell you, even if you are illiterate and cannot read the Bible, he will tell you in your conscience the things that are wrong. Isn't it amazing that a man who didn't have a Bible, who didn't even have the Holy Spirit dwelling in him, what he had was the fear or reverence of God. That's all. With the reverence for God, he knew, I must not lust after a woman who is not my wife. How is it that today's Christians, Christian men, even married men, I'm sorry to say, haven't understood that. I'll tell you why. We have heard about the grace of God, but not known the fear of God. The advantage that the early disciples had was that for 30 years, their parents brought brought them up in the fear of God. Then they heard about the grace of God from Jesus. The trouble with Christians today is they hear about the grace of God straight away. They never were brought up in the fear of God. And that's why so many Christians sin with their eyes and their thoughts. Or Job said, how can I ever do it? And he goes on to say, I won't make gold my God. You read that, amazing. What he came to, this is the man whom Satan wanted to attack. But what we learn in Job and chapter 1, something that Satan says, which is true when he's speaking to God. 
He says, God, you have put a hedge around him. Job chapter 1. You have you put a hedge around him, his family, and all that he has. Job chapter 1 verse 10. Satan recognized that there were three protective hedges around Job. And I want you to know that. If that was true of Job, it's true, true of you as a child of God. Job chapter 1 verse 10. There's a hedge around Job's person. Around his house means his family members. And a third hedge around his property. And Satan could not enter any of those hedges without God opening it up a little bit and giving him permission. So God permitted the outer hedge of the property of Job to be opened up for the devil to come. And the devil came and destroyed his property. He opened up a little bit of the inner hedge of his family and Satan came and killed his children. And the central hedge around Job himself, God opened it a little bit so you can touch his body, but you can't take his life. Every point, at every step, he could only go as far as God permitted him. And if that was true 2,000 years before Christ, how much more true it is today when Satan has been defeated? Do you know that? Do you know there are three hedges around you if you're a child of God who's walking with a clear conscience? One hedge is around all your possessions, your bank account, your assets, everything, your house, your car, everything. There's a hedge around it that God has put. Then inner that, inside that, there's a hedge around your wife and your children. And inside, there's a hedge around your body and yourself. I believe it. And Satan cannot enter any one of these hedges without God permitting it. God permits it sometimes. He permits it even today. To make us overcomers. God could boast about Job to Satan. He says, have you seen a man like that on the earth? Satan says, let me test him. I remember as a young man, when I read that about Job, where God boasted about Satan, Job to Satan saying, have you seen a man like Job? I was a young man. I was 19 and a half and I got converted. I was baptized when I was 21 and I said, Lord Jesus, can you boast like that about me? Can you boast about me to Satan and say, have you seen a young man like that <clears throat> who fears me? will turn away from evil and do what is right, whatever it may cost him. I want to ask you, my brother, sister, can God boast about like that to Satan about you? I took it as a personal challenge and I said, Lord, I want to be like that. That's been my prayer for 60 years. I want you to always boast about me. I don't care for the opinions of men. What's the use people thinking you're a spiritual person? Those people don't know 90% of your life. They can't read your thoughts. They don't know your attitudes to people. They don't know what you do in secret. They don't know how you talk to, <clears throat> excuse me, how you talk to your wife or your husband at home. They don't know these things. They don't know whether you love money. They don't know how you handle money. They don't know whether you're righteous in money matters. <clears throat> Most people know nothing about your life. Maybe you're steeped in debt. And you got into debt because you wanted to enjoy a lavish lifestyle. <clears throat> the Bible says, oh, no man, anything. <clears throat> You're not bothered about that. 
How can God boast about you? You have to clear your debt first, or at least make an effort to clear it. This is the, and then we say we want to overcome Satan. You want to overcome Satan in a hundred years. I want to tell you the truth. When you begin to fear God and His Word and say, Lord, I want to fear God, take this matter of debt. <clears throat> I am I took that seriously, Romans 13, 8. Oh, no man anything. And I'm 81 years old today. I've never been in debt for one cent to anybody in the world at any time. If you do borrow, sometimes in an emergency you may want to borrow, repay it as soon as possible. Don't try to overcome Satan if you neglect these commands in God's word. Man shall live by every word that proceeds from God's mouth is what Jesus said to the devil, first of all. And that's what I want to say to you, first of all. Don't even attempt to think you can overcome Satan if you neglect God's word. Are you fighting the battle to keep your eyes pure? These are the things I want to emphasize. It's what you read in the book of Job. And Job could not overcome Satan always because he grumbled and complained throughout, but he did not have the Holy Spirit. But he finally repented and God forgave him. But today we have the Holy Spirit. Uh, we don't follow Job. We follow Jesus who never fell, never sinned. The other thing I want to show you is where the Bible tells us how Satan came to attack Adam and Eve. Not physically like in the case of Job. Long before Job's time, the first human beings. And how did the devil come? Remember, see this very interesting in Genesis 3 verse 1. How does the devil come? First question. Has God really said? How does he come? Questioning the word of God. Has God really said, Genesis 3 1, that you can't eat from any of the trees? And he gets Satan, woman, into a discussion with Satan. Don't ever get into a discussion with Satan. You lose. You're, you're going to argue with a lawyer and a crook who is a million times cleverer than you. Don't get into an argument with him. Jesus did not get into a discussion with Satan. When Satan said something, Jesus said, It is written. Second temptation came, Jesus said, It is written. <clears throat> And the third temptation, Jesus said, it is written. That was enough. That's the same temptation that came to Eve. In those days, it wasn't written, but it was spoken. <clears throat> Has God really spoken and said? And all that Satan, all that Eve had to do was said, God has said, we cannot eat of this tree. End of discussion. Satan, I don't want to talk to you anymore about that. But she continued that discussion. And once you get into a discussion with Satan, he will always win. <clears throat> Many people, when they are trying to do something just slightly unrighteous, the devil says, well, it's not that bad. And you get into a discussion with Satan and you will always lose. And you will do that unrighteous thing. Whether it's to cheat a little in your work, to file a false tax return, or to lust after a woman or to do something wrong. Satan will convince you it's not that serious. 
But once you get into a discussion with Satan, you're going to be defeated. He's the cleverest created being, even today. Among all created beings, Satan was created with the sharpest mind. Don't try to argue with him. The only way to overcome him is by saying, it is written. And stick to God's word. And then you will overcome like Jesus did. But because he, woman here discussed with Satan, she fell into sin. The implication here was, later on as you go on, um, look at this lovely fruit. Verse 6, the woman saw the tree was good for food, a delight to the eyes, Genesis 3.6. And Satan was implying, such lovely fruit, it makes your mouth water. Why would a loving God prevent you from eating it? I'll tell you why. He doesn't really love you. So the devil is implying, because he knows, verse 5, that if you eat it, you'll be like him. And he doesn't want you to be like him. See, that's the second thing. He makes you doubt the word of God. Makes you get into a discussion with him. And then makes you doubt God's love. If anything happens in your life and Satan has succeeded in making you doubt God's love, I want to say to you, he's already put a foot inside the door. And he'll gradually pry the door open and enter your life. If you want to stop Satan at the first point, say to him, it is written. When he tempts you saying, God doesn't love you, rebuke him and say, God loves me. He loved me that he gave his only son for me. How can he say he doesn't love me? Why has he allowed your child to be sick? I don't know. But Jesus died for me on the cross. That I know he loves me. Why did he allow your child to die? God could have stopped it. You say, I don't know. But I know that God loves me. That is proved once and for all on the cross of Calvary when he died for me on the cross. It's very important to know this, to resist Satan. Let me tell you some revelation of God's love that he gave to me many years ago. When I was seeking God to understand, some of you have already heard me would know this because I mentioned it many times. But for those of you who haven't heard it, many years ago, maybe 40 years ago, I was seeking God to understand, Lord Jesus, what was the cup you were trying to avoid drinking in the Garden of Gethsemane? What is the cup he prayed and said, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me? Jesus was a person who never hesitated to do his father's will. Never, never, never. However painful it was. Even if for 40 days without food, he would not turn the stones into bread without his father's permission. Such obedience. He would not turn the stones into bread even though he had power to do it without his father's permission. Yet I find him struggling in the last day of his life. What was the cup? The cup was not physical death. Jesus would be ready to die a thousand times on on the cross because of his love for us. But there was something he did not want. That was as he came to the near of the cross, the Garden of Gethsemane, he realized that for three hours, 
I'm going to be forsaken by my father. I'm going to experience an eternal separation, eternity in three hours. I'm going to experience a separation from my heavenly father. That was the cup he didn't want to drink. I have had fellowship with my father from all eternity. That fellowship has never been broken even for one second. I don't want it to be broken now. See, we don't value that enough. We value our physical health more than we value fellowship with the Father. I'll tell you that most Christians, almost all Christians, do not value fellowship with the Father more than their physical health. If there's some problem with their physical health, they'll immediately do something to rectify it, even a small injury on their hand. But a break of fellowship with the Father, they don't take it so seriously. Do you know that one lustful look at a woman breaks your fellowship with the Father? How many Christians take that seriously? One bitter attitude towards somebody breaks your fellowship with the Father. How many people take that seriously? One person on earth whom you have not forgiven till today has broken your fellowship with the Father for ages. Who takes it seriously? I know believers who haven't forgiven others for years. But they go and break bread and they say we are believers. They sing praises to the Father. But they haven't forgiven people. They don't value fellowship with the Father. That's why you can live without fellowship with the Father. Many people wonder why God is not listening. I'll tell you why. You're not in fellowship with Him. And you're not in fellowship with Him because you don't listen to the voice of conscience. Your conscience tells you you have not forgiven that person who hurt you. You say, well, he deserves to be unforgiven. Okay. Well, Satan says, that's exactly what I want you to have, that unforgiving spirit, so I can rule over your life. He gets power over you. So, I can imagine the angels coming down in Gethsemane and saying, but Lord, it's only going to be for three hours, and then you'll be back in fellowship with the Father again. And Jesus would say, I'm imagining a conversation now. You say, I don't want my fellowship with the Father to be broken even for one second. That's how much he valued it. All through his life. And then I was imagining this conversation in the Garden of Gethsemane. I can imagine the father telling Jesus, you haven't sinned one bit till today. You can come straight up from Gethsemane to heaven right now. But Zach will go to hell. And Jesus says, Zach will go to hell? Okay, Father, I'll go to the cross to save Zach from hell and drink that which I detest being separated from you for three hours. Many of us think that the great suffering Jesus had was the nails on the hands and feet. No, that was not even a drop in an ocean compared to his separation from the Father. And I remember when, the, when that came to me as a revelation, as I was seeking God to understand the cup, I wept and I wept and I wept. And I said, Lord, I never knew you loved me so much. It changed my life. I decided I'd never live for myself for the rest of my life. I asked God to give me a long life so that I could live and show my gratitude to him. I said, Lord, I don't want any reward in heaven. You've already done more than enough for me on the cross, but I want to 
say thank you to you by living a life totally devoted to you. I will never live for money. I will never preach for money. I'll never go to places just to please, uh, to rich churches to get money. No, I will support myself and I'll serve you. I will not take money from people. And that's how I've lived for all these years. Even if I have to live simply, that's fine. Because of one thing, I saw what Jesus went through to save me eternally. God revealed that to me 40 years ago and I haven't forgotten it. It brings tears to my eyes even now when I think of it. We love him because he first loved us. And when that love grips your heart, Satan cannot touch you. Let me show you 1 John chapter 3. Here is a revelation that came to me. See, if you don't come into this love relationship, Christ and with God, don't even try to overcome sin. It's not a technique. There's no technique here. The first commandment is love God with all your heart, soul, strength and mind. Your whole heart must be filled with a fervent love for God. And the other side of the coin is love your neighbor as yourself. In other words, every single person, there must not be a single person on earth whom you haven't forgiven. There must not be a single person on earth whom you hate. If there's one human being whom you detest and hate, please don't imagine that you can overcome Satan. Forget it. If you hate your mother-in-law, I don't care how bad your mother-in-law was to you, even if she was like the devil himself. If you hate her, you will never overcome Satan. Maybe your mother-in-law is under Satan's power, but you come under Satan's power too. The devil kills two birds with one stone. He made that person evil towards you, whoever it is. One stone. He doesn't throw a stone at you. You just react in an unforgiving spirit to him and he's, the devil's killed two birds with one stone. Don't let the devil make a fool of you. Forgive. See what it says in 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4. It's an amazing statement. <clears throat> chapter 4 verse 17. The last part. As Jesus is so are we in this world. I remember when I first got light on that verse. I said, Lord, is this really true? I meditated on it. Don't skip through these verses quickly. Meditate on it. As Jesus is, so am I in this world. And I say to myself, as Jesus is, so am I in this world. You know, in other words, you mean my position in this world today is just like what Jesus was when he was in this world? Yes. If I fear God and I have surrendered my life to him and he's Lord of my life and I've kept a pure conscience and been free from all known sin, then as Jesus is, so am I in this world. And the way it came to me was like this. Was Jesus afraid of the devil or was the devil afraid of Jesus? You know the answer. The devil was scared of Jesus. Wherever Jesus went, the demons would start crying out, He's come here, He's come here. And 
what the Lord said to me was, as in your early days, you were afraid of the devil. From now on, the devil will be afraid of you. Because as Jesus is, so are you in this world. Now, you may say that's not possible. Okay, it will not be possible for you because you don't believe it. It is possible for me because I believe it. According to your faith, be it unto you. You never experience anything in scripture if you don't believe it. For example, your sins will not be forgiven if you don't believe that Christ died for your sins. He died for your sins, but if you don't believe it, you are unforgiven. Christ defeated Satan on the cross, but you don't believe it, Satan has power over you. It's written here that as Christ is, so are we in this world. You don't believe it. It will not be true in your life. I believed it. And I can say that delivered me from the fear of Satan. You know the number of believers are afraid of Satan? Satan may attack me. Satan may attack my children. Satan may attack my wife. Boy, are you a believer or what? Do you believe what it says in all these verses I've quoted today? Let us stand in the power God has given us. Let me give you some more warnings from Scripture. In 2 Corinthians in chapter 2, Paul says in verse 11, So that no advantage should be taken of us by Satan, because we are not ignorant of his schemes and his tactics. How does Satan take advantage of us? He's talking about believers. When he says us, he's talking about himself plus the Corinthian Christian. That includes you and me. What does he say? <clears throat> See the context, verse 10. I forgive that person who did something wrong. Why do I forgive that person who did something wrong? So that Satan doesn't get an advantage over me. It's so clear that Satan gets an advantage over any believer, including Paul, if he does not forgive somebody. So let's stop for a moment. Stop and ask yourself right now before we proceed. Can you think of anyone whom you have not forgiven? And I'll tell you, you don't have to think long. It will immediately come to your mind. Maybe this person, that person, the other person. I want you to do something right now. You cannot erase the memory of what that person did to hurt you or harm you or your family or anything. That can never be erased because we have no control over our memory. But you you have power over your will. And say, say to the Lord in his presence right now, Lord, that person whom I have not forgiven till now, I forgive right now. And that other person who did harm to me or my family, I forgive right now. And that other person, if you've got ten names, name them all and forgive them in the presence of God. And it is done. The memory of what they did will come to you for the next 50 years. So what? I remember the things that people did against me. Doesn't Jesus know that people who crucified him? Sure. But he forgave them. And so I may remember so many things that people have done against me, but I've forgiven every one of them. And so Satan cannot take advantage of me. It says here, Satan takes advantage. 
And that's part of his tactics. An unforgiving spirit. It's so very important that I've been stressing it so much everywhere now. Forgive everyone. Forgive, 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 brother and sister. It's very important. The other thing I want to mention is Ephesians in chapter 4. Again, it speaks about how Satan takes advantage over us. It says in Ephesians 4 and verse 27, Don't give the devil an opportunity. How do you give the devil an opportunity? See the context of it. Verse 26, When you get angry, don't sin. Don't let the sun set on your anger. So there is an anger which is not sinful. And there is an anger which is sinful. <clears throat> so how to distinguish between the two? Because if I'm angry in a sinful way, it says in verse 27, the devil gets an opportunity over me. Do you know the number of people, believers, over whom the devil gets power? Because they get angry in a wrong way. So how to distinguish what is the right way and wrong way to get angry? You know, whenever you don't understand a verse of scripture, I follow the principle. In the olden days, when if I read, read something and I see a word in the English language which I don't understand, you know what I would do? I'd put that book down and take a dictionary and open up that word and say, oh, I never knew the meaning of this word before. Now I know the meaning. So when you read something in the Bible and you don't understand, go to the dictionary. This is the written word. Go to the word that became flesh. John 1.1, 1, 1, it says the word became flesh. John 1.14, that is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the one, his life explains the difficult verses. So I say, how to know when to get angry, when not to get angry? I go to the dictionary. I go to Jesus, the word made flesh. When did he get angry? He got angry when he saw people making money in the name of religion. That is to be the Christ-like. When you see on television creatures who are making money from poor people in the name of Christianity. If you don't get angry, you are not a follower of Jesus. I get angry when I see a preacher on television or anywhere else, else or in his publication asking poor people to give him money. Something Jesus never did. I get angry because I want to be like Jesus. And if you don't get angry, I say to you in Jesus' name, you're not like him. You're so too gentle. You're gentle with the devil. I don't want to be like that. The other place we read Jesus is angry, you read in Mark chapter 2, where once he went into a synagogue to heal a man who had a withered hand, and the Pharisees said, no, today's the Sabbath, you can't heal and Jesus was angry at the lack of compassion those Pharisees had for this poor suffering man. When you don't have compassion for people who are suffering, you should be angry at those people who don't have compassion for a poor man. So those are the two instances I see Jesus being angry. When he saw people making money in the name of religion in the temple, he chased them out in anger. When he saw people having no compassion on some suffering man, he was angry. But nowhere else. I never see him getting angry when people called him the devil. They called him Beelzebub, prince of devils. He said, you're forgiven. When they spat on his face, slapped him, hit him, he forgave them. So what I learned from all this is one very simple lesson. 
I must never be angry when people hurt me or speak evil about me or to me or anything they do to me. If I get angry, that is sinful anger. Whatever it is. But I must get angry when it concerns the glory of God. Or when people hurt others without compassion. And the sad thing is what I see in many believers. I'm talking about believers. They get angry when people hurt them. And they don't get angry when they see people making money in the name of Christianity. And they don't get angry when people are exploiting others and all the sex trafficking going on in, in the world. Little children being kidnapped and all that. They don't get angry when they read it. I get angry when I read that in the papers and I say, Lord Jesus, come soon and protect these poor helpless people. Do you find a reaction in you? We must be angry for the right reason. Be angry but never sin. Otherwise, it says here, verse 27, Ephesians 4, 27, you are giving the devil an opportunity. You yourself are opening the door for Satan to come into your life when you get angry with someone because he hurt you, because he spoke evil about you, because he exploited you, or he hurt your family members, and you get angry. You're opening the door saying, Satan, come right in. Come right into my family. I welcome you. It's believers who are opening the door to Satan who was defeated on the cross. By not forgiving people, by getting angry when somebody hurts you or your family. So, let me turn now to Ephesians chapter 6. I remember years ago the Lord showing me this. Ephesians chapter 6. Verse 12. He's talking about standing, verse 11, Ephesians 6, 11. Standing against all the schemes of Satan. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood. That means we don't fight against human beings but against these spiritual rulers and powers of darkness, the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Satan was thrown out of the third heaven into the second heaven, and we battle him in these heavenly places. And our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against these satanic powers. And the way the Lord spoke to me from that verse is, never fight with human beings. Conserve your energy. To fight against Satan alone. Never fight with flesh and blood. So that's a principle I've tried to follow for years and years. And it has helped me in my battle against Satan. Not only in my personal battles. But in relation to my family. In relation to the churches I have responsibility for. To ensure that Satan doesn't get an entry there. That I refuse to fight with flesh and blood. Have you made a decision like that in your life that you will never fight with a human being? I've had sometimes, you know, I stand strongly for certain doctrines in scripture. And I've had people who, preachers and others, come to my house and they want to argue with me about some things. And the moment I discover that they have come for an argument, I keep quiet. I say, if you want to know the truth, I can spend two hours explaining it to you from scripture. But if you have come to argue with me, I say, I'm sorry. Excuse me. I'm not going to argue with you at all. You can believe what you like. You can imagine that you won the argument. Please go ahead. But I will not reply to you. 
because I refuse to fight with flesh and blood, even over doctrinal matters. My calling is not to fight for a doctrine. My calling is to proclaim a doctrine and to stand for the truth of Scripture unashamedly, fearlessly, but not to get into an argument with people. No. I want to avoid arguments. I want to avoid all type of conflicts. I will not get into conflict with people who try to cheat me or get in an argument over money or any of these things. No. No, I'm not going to do it. If you don't have that attitude, Satan will get an advantage over you. Then I want to show you something else. <clears throat> Please turn with me to Luke chapter 16. Satan is called the God of this world. We saw how Jesus said, the prince of this world comes and he's got nothing in me. He doesn't find anything in me that responds to him. Satan is the one who controls television. He controls the financial world. He controls the political world. And we have to be very careful that we don't get polluted in these areas. It's all right for a Christian to vote. But when you begin to canvas for a particular political party that is your favorite, be careful that you don't hold hand in glove with the devil and promote a person who is a godless man. What should we do in the time of election? I'll tell you what I've done in India and anywhere for the last so many years. I do what it says in 1 Timothy 2, the first few verses. Pray for those in authority. I say, Lord, I'm going to cast my vote in the prayer meeting. I'm not going to canvass with people to vote for this person or that, this party or that party. I'm going to pray that Almighty God, who knows what is the best person to rule my country, will allow him to come in power. I have faith that God will do that. So I pray in the meeting. Yeah, you can go and cast your vote after that, but have faith that God will control the affairs. That's the meaning of 1 Timothy to pray for those in authority that we may lead a peaceable life in godliness and honesty. Not that my party will win. I'm not interested in that. That we as Christians will be able to lead a peaceable life in godliness and honesty because we are not citizens of this world. The citizens of the world can go around canvassing for their party to win. But I'm a citizen of heaven. And I want to make sure that the gospel of Jesus Christ can spread in the world and I want to that we can live a peaceable life in godliness and honesty. We pray for that. These are the subtle ways in which the devil gets into people's lives and messes them up. So be very careful because your effectiveness, the sharpness of your spiritual sword will get blunt if you get involved in all these side issues. We have to keep our sword sharp to preach the gospel, to proclaim the truth of an overcoming life, to proclaim the truth that Satan was defeated on the cross and need have no power over your life at all. So here it says in Luke 16, verse 30, no one can serve two masters. Who are the two masters? You say God and Satan. Jesus said no. Nobody will imagine that he can serve God and Satan. Everybody knows that's not possible. Here he says that two masters are God and money, wealth. That, I'm sorry to say, many Christians think they can. Many Christians think they can serve money and serve God. Sorry, you cannot. Jesus said money is a master. 
God is a master. And you have to choose which master you want to serve. And because some people become slaves to money, the devil gets power over them. Because they do some unrighteous things. Not only they do unrighteous things, their mind is all the time occupied with money, 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 money. How to make more money, how to make more money. You think such a person can serve God? You think Jesus, when he was on earth, was always thinking how to make more money? He worked hard as a carpenter up to the age of 30. and He needed money to help his four younger brothers and two sisters and a widowed mother at home. Um, Eight-member family he's got. He's got to support that and he worked hard as a carpenter. So his mind was on money to earn his living, but not how to make more money, how to become the richest carpenter in Nazareth. He never had all those ambitions. He wanted to earn to take care of his family. He didn't want to be in debt to anybody. So many Christians open the door to the devil themselves and say, how to overcome Satan? You'll never be able to overcome Satan unless you close the door to the love of money. To have money is okay. Maybe you have $10 million in your bank account. That's okay if you don't love it. Or whether you have $10 in your bank account. The question is not how much you have. The question is not what is your monthly income. Whether you have a very high monthly income or low monthly income, that's not the point. The point is, do you love it? Some people think, oh, I'm poor. I don't love money. I have seen thousands of poor people on the streets in India. Every one of them loves money. Have you seen a homeless man in your life who doesn't love money? You think poverty brings freedom from the love of money? It does not. I've seen very rich people who don't love money. And I've seen very poor people who love money like anything. So it's not got to do anything to, with your bank account. Don't say to yourself, oh, I'm very poor. I don't love money. <laughs> you probably love money more than all those rich people. I mean, you're certain maybe you were careless with money. That's why you're poor. Or maybe you were not disciplined in the use of it. And so you're poor. Or maybe you didn't honor God. God always provides his need, the needs of his children. He certainly does. But if you love money, you cannot love God. You cannot serve God and money. How to find out? Why is this important? Because the devil is the prince of this world. And he's the one who controls and he can get a grip on you through money. You've got to be careful. How to find out if I'm serving God or money? Well, here's a test. Let me use an illustration. Here's A, Mr. A and Mr. B sitting in front of me. And they both say, Zach is my servant. How will you find out whether I'm a servant of A or B? Very easy. Tell both A and B to call Zach. So both A and B asked me to come to them. And the one I go to, I'm his servant. So here is God and money calling you. Which one do you respond to? You are the servant of that person. You can answer that yourself. But if you respond to money more than to God, I want to tell you Satan get a power over your life. Because he's the God of this world. Then I want to say one more thing. In Revelation and chapter 12, I'm trying to try to show you the schemes of Satan by which he gets power over God's people. Turn with me to Revelation and chapter 12. Here, Satan is called in verse 9, the deceiver of the whole world. He 
is always trying to deceive people. That includes believers as well. And it says in verse 10 that he's called the accuser of believers. It's a title of Satan. The accuser of God's children. So when you get into the habit of accusing God's children, you're holding hands with Satan, whether you know it or not. Did you realize that? Satan says, I want to accuse God's children. Whenever I see one of God's children doing something wrong, I want to tell everybody about it. And Satan says, I want some co-workers. Will you be my co-worker? He tells God's children, will you, one of you be my co-workers in going around spreading the news about the evil this believer did? And you say, yes, I'll do that. I'll tell everybody what this person did. Look at all the gossips there are among Christians who don't talk about the good things somebody did, who talk about the evil this person did and the evil that person did and the evil the other person did. Who are they holding hands with at that moment? What you say may be right. That It says here the devil accuses people before God. The devil may tell lies to us, but he can't tell a lie to God. When he accuses you about something to God, is something true. Whenever he accuses a believer, he says, this believer did this. He can't dare to tell a lie to God. What he tells about that believer is absolutely accurate. This believer told a lie. This believer cheated the tax people. This believer has got a bitterness against this person. This believer is always gossiping about somebody in his house. He's speaking the truth. And so don't glory in saying, well, what I said was true. Okay, it may be true. What the devil says to God is also true. But it can be a spirit of accusation. So when you have a spirit of accusation against somebody, particularly somebody you don't like, you don't like you're holding hands with the accuser. That is Satan. That's how Satan gets power with you. And all that I've been trying to tell you in these in this session, is the ways in which to stop holding hands with the devil. Resist him in Jesus' name. Don't fight with flesh and blood. Fight with Satan. Don't accuse people. Let the devil do the accusation. If you turn with me to Zechariah. In the book of Zechariah, we read a a demonstration of this. In Zechariah chapter 3, we read about Joshua, the high priest at that time, standing before the Lord. And Satan, Zechariah 3, 1, was standing there to accuse him. This is what we just spoke about. And the Lord said, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. And Satan was accusing Joshua because, verse 3, his garments were filthy. That means there was some sin in his life. That's the meaning. Oh God, there's sin in Joshua's life. And it is true. But the Lord rebukes him. Say, no, I plucked him out of man from the burning. Today it's him. My son has died for his sins and his sins are cleansed. And then Zachariah, and he says here, uh, the Lord says, take away those filthy garments and clothe him. Today, the meaning is clothe him in the righteousness of Christ. Satan, you can't accuse him anymore. That's what God says. And then see what Zechariah says in verse 5. Zechariah joins hands with God, not with Satan. 
is so gaga, it's wonderful that you put these new robes upon him and also put a clean turban on his head. Wow. Who is he holding hands with there? With the one who's justifying Joshua the high priest. Not the one who's accusing him. Keep that picture in your mind. Whenever you see a child of God, there's something wrong in his life. And there's something wrong in every child of God's life. They're not perfect. And you see something, you can be pretty sure the devil's accusing that person to God about it. You go, you got an option now, either to pray for him or to accuse him. It says in Revelation 12, we saw that he accuses people day and night. Devil is a full-time worker. Revelation 12 time, a full-time accuser of the brethren. The opposite of that, it says about Jesus in Hebrews 7 and verse 25. He's a full-time intercessor. Day and night, Hebrews 7.25, he prays for God's people. That's what we saw in Zechariah 3. A child of God who's got something wrong in his life. The devil standing there to accuse him. God justifying him. And Zachariah watching this and saying, which side shall I join? He joins up with God and prays for him to be blessed. And today you are in the place of Zachariah and you see some child of God put something wrong in their life and the devil's there to accuse him and Jesus is there to pray for him. You stand there in between, decide which side you're going to take. Do you want to be an overcomer? You want to overcome Satan? Be an overcomer all your days. This is God's plan for your life. Be an intercessor and not an accuser. Remember the things that he said, how the devil comes to make Eve doubt God's love. God doesn't love you. That's why he doesn't want you to have this thing. God doesn't love you. That's why he allowed your child to die. Say, get behind me, Satan. Let me say one last thing before I close. There were two times in the Gospels we read <clears throat> Jesus saying, get behind me, Satan. Have you noticed that? Twice. Get behind me, Satan. That means get away from here. And it's very interesting to see in what context he said that. Matthew chapter 4, the devil came to Jesus in the third temptation he showed him all the kingdoms of the world. Genesis, Matthew 4, verse 8. And their glory. And he said, I'll give this to you. If you will worship me. From the beginning, the devils wanted worship. Remember this. The devil wants people to admire him and worship him. And when you, listen carefully, when you want people to admire you, and honor you. Be careful. You're going to hold hands with Satan. We are not called. To get people to admire us and honor us. We have to point away at Jesus. And say he alone is worthy. Of all honor and glory. Not me. He alone is worthy of all honor and glory. Don't ever try to draw attention to yourself. The devil loves people to worship him. And Jesus said. Go Satan. Get away from here. What was the devil implying 
Let me paraphrase his words. Jesus, you have come to earth to win these people to God. You don't have to go to the cross and die. I'll show you a shortcut. Bow down to me and I'll give them all to you. He was tempting Jesus to avoid the cross. You can win the world without going to the cross. I'll give it to you. Just bow down to me. Get away, Satan. Any voice that tells you to avoid the way of the cross, the way of death to self, is the voice of Satan. Now turn with me to the second time Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. That is the first time. In Genesis 16, we read about Jesus saying, verse 21. Sorry, I'm sorry, not Genesis. Matthew 16, verse 21. Matthew 16, verse 21. From that time, Matthew 16, 21, Jesus began to show his disciples that he has to go to the Jerusalem and suffer and be killed. The cross. And Peter says, no, Lord, don't go to the cross. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. It's the second time Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. Again, the message was the same. Anybody who tells me to avoid the way of the cross, is the voice of Satan. Whether it comes from Satan himself, Matthew 4, or the, whether it comes from my closest disciple, Peter, Matthew 16. And I want to say that to you. Whenever you hear a voice inside you telling you, don't die to yourself here. Assert yourself. Stand on your dignity. And the Holy Spirit says, take up the cross. Die to yourself. Give up your rights. And you say, no. I don't want people to take advantage of me like that. Okay? When you've gone the way of Satan. Jesus refused to hear any voice that said to him, avoid the cross, avoid the cross. And I want to say to you, my brothers and sisters, in closing, that is a voice you hear many times a day. When you're insulted, to fight back, when you're tempted to accuse somebody. Now don't die to yourself. When people praise you, for that to go to your head instead of dying to yourself. Picture what a dead man, how a dead man will react. This is what I use in my mind sometimes. Here's a dead man. People call him all types of bad names. Doesn't affect him. He's dead. Or some other people go and praise him and say, oh, you're a great prophet. Doesn't affect him. Such a man will overcome Satan always. That's why Jesus said, take up the cross and follow me. Remember, it was on the cross that Satan was defeated. And then it is when you're on the cross yourself that Satan will have no power over you. Determine, I am going to keep my conscience clear all the time and choose the way of the cross in every situation to die to myself. Never to fight with human beings. We do not fight with flesh and blood. So that I can conserve all my energy to resist Satan and to accomplish his purpose. Keep unity with your wife. Very important. Because whenever a gap comes between you and your wife, the devil comes right through the gap and attacks your children. You know why your children were attacked by the devil? Because you and your wife opened the door by bringing 
having conflict with each other. You and your wife have conflict with each other. You're supposed to be one. With Christ in between. Where two are gathered together in my name. There's tremendous power. But the devil succeeded in making you and your wife argue. Or you and your husband argue. And a gap came between. And who was he interested in attacking? Your children. You ask yourself why your children went astray? Don't go any further in asking whether you and your marriage partner are arguing with each other and brought a gap there. What shall you do now? Repent. Repent. There's a solution for everything in repentance and coming back to God and taking the blame instead of blaming your children, instead of blaming your marriage partner. Say, Lord, it's me. It's me. It's my fault, Lord. Forgive me. I open the door to the devil in my home. Say that. But Lord, I'm going to close it now. I'm not going to let it happen anymore. Because you've defeated Satan on the cross and he's not going to get any part in my life or in my home or over my children. God does not want any of your children to be under the power of Satan. He wants to free all of them, pray for them. Even if they're gone astray, God can bring them back. God bless you. Let's pray. As we bow our heads in prayer, Will you pray one prayer? Lord, please remind me of the things that I need to do to set certain matters right that you have spoken to me today. I don't want Satan to have any power over my life. Thank you, Father. Help me. In Jesus' name. Amen.